What is the problem with transgenderism? Leave people alone, man. Just let, what's the big deal? They're not hurting anybody. Let them do what they want to do. Yeah, I think it all begins in creatureliness. We don't fundamentally want to accept what Cornelius Van Til, the apologist, called the creator-creature distinction. We don't want to recognize God is above us, and not just a little bit six feet above us, but as infinitely above us, and even beyond us. We want to be on the level of God. And Oscar referenced this earlier in our discussions today, but that's Satan's temptation directly to Eve, to be like God. That's Satan trying to collapse the creator-creature distinction into nothingness. You, are, Eve, you're on the same level as God. That's what is at stake here, because as creatures, God has made us either a man or a woman for his glory. What do we do? Before our program starts, we group cackle. Sometimes they call it a cackle. What? I don't know what they call it. We, we group of godly men. Uh, we talk about beards. We rag on one another. Intersectionality. I wonder, does that deal with the bearded and the, <laughs> the non-bearded? Is there an advantage somewhere? Ray Comfort I have and, facial hair restrictions. I'm feeling slightly offended right that's now. That's what it is. Facial hair subtra- suppression. But yeah, Ray Comfort, Dr. Owen Strand, who's with us today, ragging on each other's beards. That was fun. How do you say beard in New Zealandish, Ray? I'm not talking ever again. <laughs> I, I get mocked. Last day, you should come mock us, walking after their own last. We already did the beer, bear, and... Yeah, yeah beer, well, I, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's why I was giving away these little teddy bears at Christmas at hunting the beach and calling out anyone like a free beer, and these guys came over. <laughs> it's because it's beer... Beer and beer are all the same thing in New Zealand. You've got to work it out in context. Thanks Don't for get bearing attacked. your heart on that, right? Don't get attacked by a drink. Yeah. Well, friends, amid the insanity, for any of you that are still with us, that are still listening or watching, oh, we're recording this today on video. We have some heavy stuff to talk about. We have with us again, Dr. Owen Strand. How long have you been a doctor, by the way? When did that deal um, happen? You say it's a doctor. I, I got the... <laughs> I got the certificate in the mail from the degree mill <laughs> in 2011. Bad joke. 2011. Bad joke. I got my PhD in theological studies from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in 2011. 2011. Those give those out to anybody They give them out to anyone. <laughs> 10 years. 10 years, dog. We need to send Ray over how, there. Were you six? I mean, how old were you? <laughs> <laughs> I was 14. <laughs> Yeah, the first the time... The Doogie Hazard of theology. Yeah. Wow. The first time I saw you, and you didn't have a beard, I think, when you spoke at Kindred no. back in the day. Sanctifi- sanctification. You're growing happened. in righteousness. Yeah. Right? yeah. Just and I'm becoming tr- more worldly. I'm trying to get it bigger and bigger. It's a, pr- it's a single-handed <laughs> protest against an androgenifying ah, culture. There we go. Like That's that? fitting. Fitting yeah. for what we're talking about we today. Go. Well, Dr. Strand, you are the provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas, fellow senior fellow with Family Research Council, which does great work, by the way. I've been in the FRC. How long have you been working with them? Um, half a year. That's great. Yeah, I'm thankful to be with them. Really they, taking a stand, aren't they? They take a They're stand. They're a in the culture, for sure. They are, and they do it in a similar way to you all here that you do so well. They, they do it convictionally, but also with some good cheer. You know, we want to have good cheer about us. Amen. I like have a little the happy huh? warriors. Y'all 
dude. I hear the y'all. Y'all. Yeah, oh, dude. you're getting the y'all going I'm, Come on, man. Beard. <laughs> I want a pickup truck. I'm in Arkansas. You're I'm in going Arkansas. Back to, it's happening. I'm going back to my roots, man. I'm from Maine. I'm not from one of these fancy places in America, okay? I'm from Maine. That's you're a it, Scotsman. Man. So own it. I'm yeah. a Scotsman. So, yeah, and you've written a number of books, most notably Reenchanting Humanity. And uh, The Pastor as Public Theologian, which you co-authored, and then uh, Always in God's Hands, Day by Day in the Company of Jonathan Edwards. And you've also written a book that's applicable to what we're talking about today, and that book is What Does the Bible Teach About Transgenderism? You know, I have to be honest, Ray and I talk about this a lot. Sometimes we can't believe that we actually find ourselves needing to talk about this issue. Yeah. Because definitely when I was growing up, maybe even... Five years ago. I mean, it's it's been this punctuated equilibrium, if you would, where it's just it's just leapt forward at, at supersonic speed, yeah. and we find ourselves here. So we're going to talk about that today. How big of an issue is this facing the church? Yeah, it's a huge issue. Not just men getting transitional surgeries to become a woman or vice versa, something like that. But the broader issue at stake is really the destabilizing of divine design found in Genesis 1 through 3, such that we understand ourselves as human persons as either a man or a woman in correspondence with the body that God has naturally given us. This issue is about transitional surgeries and boys going into girls' bathrooms and terrible things happening, as has occurred recently in Virginia. It's been in the news all through the news, or some of the news that will report it, that is. That stuff matters. But the broader stuff that is really discipleship and worldview formation and theology is, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? And so we can take this moment, I think, culturally, and use it for discipleship and instruction and evangelism to help people understand you don't just have X body. God has given you an identity, and your body corresponds to that. So there's a lot in play here. Yeah. Sometimes I think about the excesses of the sinful heart of man and where it goes, and then how that's pacified by, I think, again, a Romans 1 type of atmosphere where, as it says in Romans 1, a part of the wrath of God and reprobation is that knowing the righteous judgments of God, that those who do such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but then they give approval to those that do them. And that's what makes it normalized in a culture. And that's where good becomes evil and the evil becomes good and becomes a reversal. Ray, this is on steroids right now. And where do we stand as a church in terms of men of God thundering from the pulpits, the importance of God's people being salt and light? Because we're going to talk about it, that gospel is the answer. Yeah, pastors reproduce their own kind in the pews. And if pastors centered on prophecy or he's centered on some particular issue, that's flocks going to imitate him. And pastors need to preach the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, expound the law of God, put the fear of God back into God's people so that they obey him and take the gospel to every creature. Wherefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, Paul said, we persuade men. That's so against everything modern evangelism stands for mm. with this passive sort of uh, view of God. Mm. I'd like to mention something that, that someone heard about this whole issue and beards and stuff like I, I love the thought of Jesus clearing the temple, making a whip, one man walking in amongst other men and terrifying them. 
because he was manly. He was strong. He was a carpenter. And I remember years ago, mm. uh, this is like, it's got to be 40 years, maybe 45 years ago, uh, when this was unusual. I went to, a, uh, I'd made a movie and we needed to do a soundtrack. I went to a secular station to use their studio and spent 40 minutes to an hour with a blonde young lady in studio working together. Her name was Lee and got to know her. It was just great. Didn't witness to her for some reason. And anyway, about two months later, a month later, who cares how long it was? I'm not a woman. Details don't really matter. <laughs> a month later, someone come up to me and they said, you hear Lee's become a Christian from so-and-so radio station. I said, oh, that's really great for her. They said, not her, him. Lee was a he masquerading as a she, and I hadn't picked it up. And I thought, oh, that is so cool. What am I going to say next time I see him, her? Because I already knew her. Uh, what's my reaction going to be? And I was sitting in church about a month later, who cares how long it was, and I looked across the congregation and I saw a familiar face. I mean, I thought, that's Lee. And he walked across and he had a beard coming through. <laughs> and I thought, here goes. Is it going to be, hey, Lee, nice to see you again? And I didn't get a chance. He beer hugged me. <laughs> Just kind of good to see you. And he had a manly spirit. And that's what happens when you're made new in Christ. You receive that which God intended, the masculinity of a man and the femininity of a woman. Mm -hmm. That's how God created you. Mark, Mm -hmm. is there there culpability in silence? Is there guilt on the part of pastors that just will not address this? I mean, does there come a point where the shepherds amidst God's flock are responsible to stand up? Yeah, well, let not many of you become teachers, you know, knowing that there's a stricter judgment. Not too long ago, I was asked the question, do you think that there's a lot of people that attend churches that are not Christians? And I said, well, take it a step further. I think a lot of people behind the pulpit are not Christians either, right? They've just become social clubs and we tickle the ears because that's what people want. It's a weird time. It's a weird time and it's a confusing time. Pastors don't preach the hard things because they're not living the difficult life down the narrow road. Once that begins to happen, and those churches are few and far between, but there are the churches out there. God's always had his remnant. You know, the average church size is somewhere between 35 and 100 people. I would say a lot of these mega churches we need to kind of be careful of. When you call a church or you can't find on the church's website their statement of faith, and there is no discussion of uh, sin, judgment, and righteousness in the midst of it, or uh, the, the fate of man, you know, hell is entirely removed uh, from uh, any sort of a statement of faith. Your antenna should begin to go up. You know, we see these people that are making these transitions here in the United States, or excuse me, in California, rather, very specifically, kids are allowed to get uh, growth hormones or blockers, hormone blockers, rather. A 13-year-old cannot go see a rated R movie, can't get a tattoo, cannot go inside the nurse's office and get a Tylenol for a headache. But what they can receive are hormone blockers to continue to progress to what they actually are. Some of them irreversible at that age. And, and it's a shame. We had somebody, when we had our an older show, The Comfort Zone, we had somebody that came and sat down and they went from male to female to male to female, back over to male again. And if you look at the person, that they were a complete mess, physically speaking, because they allowed their body to enter into some, down or go down a road that it wasn't designed to go. Mm. And it's not uncommon to hear somebody say, well, why can't you accept me for who I am? And the truth of the matter is, they can't accept themselves for who they are. Mm. And that's where the truth lies. 
the reason why I cannot accept you for who you are and the reason why it is an issue and the reason why I need to speak up is because it's a lie. It's a lie. And all liars will have their part in the lake of fire, Revelation 21, verse 8. I want to take a step back and explore how we got here. In Carl Sherman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he points out that it's happened so quickly. He mentions, I think it's his dad, who's a Vietnam veteran who passed away. He was like, if you were to say to my dad, you are a man living in a woman's body or a woman living in a man's body, it would sound so foreign to him, such a ridiculous concept. And yet today, you don't need to uh, attend a queer theory seminar to believe that that's true. It's almost pop cultural belief. It's an orthodox that many people just assume. How did we get here? How do we get to a place where that's just assumedly accepted? We love to give things away. We love to give things away. And that's why we will do that every single day here on the Living Waters Podcast. That's right, friends. We're giving away goodies for those of you who go to livingwaters.com forward slash podcast and fill out the form. We are giving 10, believe it or not, 10 different people each week goodies from Living Waters, a $100 value for each box. You'll get tracts and books and the podcast mug and all kinds of good things. So make sure to participate at livingwaters.com forward slash podcast. And make sure to listen to the very end of the podcast where you will hear the announcement of the winners every week. Yeah, I think Romans 1, which Easy referenced a bit ago, gives us that playbook, the devil's own playbook for how this goes. You start with not being thankful to your creator. You start with rejecting the doctrine of creation. You reject your own creatureliness. And from there, you're on the roller coaster down. And so you embrace ungodly sexual practices and you embrace an ungodly personal identity in a bodily sense and you embrace homosexuality in full, as we've talked about. And that, as we have also said, is God's judgment on you and on a people. If you look at America, let's talk about America real quick, you see that in the 60s, roughly, there's what is sometimes called the sexual revolution that picks up. And it really starts by destabilizing womanhood and making women see themselves as equivalent to men and occupying the same roles as men of necessity as a kind of justice issue. You play it out over the next six decades, basically, and you have the normalization of homosexuality. And then more lately has come the normalization of a kind of transgender identity where a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man, or even you can cross over into a kind of different space, a, a neutral zone where you're, you're not necessarily anything. Or you can become a cat. That's an actual gender option on Facebook, a feeless gender. So it's not just, this isn't all just about manhood and womanhood. Of course, it ultimately must be for us because that's all God made in terms of this discussion. But in terms of our culture, we start with the attack on womanhood which is exactly where things start in Genesis 3, fascinatingly. Satan attacks Eve because Adam is not owning his God-given role to cultivate and guard Eden, Genesis 2.15. And so Satan attacks womanhood. And Satan has more recently in America attacked womanhood. And from there has come 
uh, a chain of degradation leading to today where younger people in particular, not so much our generations, but I mean, 15-year-olds today in normal places in America, take it as an article of faith, just as basic fact that of course you can be whatever you want to be. And you may have the body of a man or a woman. That doesn't mean anything. And so it's all up for grabs today. It's accelerating. When years ago, in my generation, we used the moral decline of a frog in a frying pan that was heated slowly. Frogs in a microwave. Mm-hmm. George Orwell, uh, the dystopian author there, he said, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who proclaim it. Judy Bloom, the author, she said, the truth is going to make you odd. Gene Wilder, the actor, he said, if you're not going to speak the truth, well, then don't, don't open your mouth. It wasn't too long ago that I was preaching the gospel out on the pier there in Huntington Beach. And I went up to a group of uh, guys and I said, hey, would you have a problem if I told you that I identify as a female? And of course, the answer here in California is no, I, it doesn't matter. I said, would you have a problem if I told you that I identify as a 65-year-old black female? I said, well, I, I don't know. I have a bit of a problem with that. And I go, well, why, why is that? Well, because you're not. <laughs> You're not, mm-hmm. right? But a man can identify as a female, a female can identify as a toaster oven. But if I wanted to identify as a 65-year-old black female with a monobrow made out of caterpillars and get a scholarship designed for those who are in such a category, am I able to do so? And the truth of the matter is there you can't because there's a, there's a tipping point. There's a fall-off point. And what we need to do is we need to continually lay down the gauntlet and just say, hey, listen, let the cards fall where they may. I, I just, I don't care the ramifications. I don't care what you're going to say or do with me or anything else. I need to remain true to the word. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And truth is not elusive or mysterious as the Hindus say. You know, Buddha said that the truth was hidden from us within Islam. Muhammad said that he pointed people to the truth, but here's Jesus speaking from truth with truth because he was the ultimate truth. So if we want to live within the truth, we have to stick within the realms of from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 because the entirety of that is true. And we need to be able to, as we saw Pastor James Coates do up in Canada, stand on truth because we can't do anything other. There is no other option. It took you three podcasts to say something worthwhile. <laughs> and I'm just well, so I think glad you, for you finally it. got there. <laughs> Owen, I, I want to zero in theologically. A lot of times we'll hear Deuteronomy 22.5 quoted, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Mm. Obviously, this was definitely an element of pagan society, and God was trying to preserve his people in the midst of it. So this isn't something that's new per se, but break it down for us theologically. What is the problem with transgenderism? Leave people alone, man. Just let, what's a big deal? They're not hurting anybody. Let them do what they want to do. Yeah, I think it all begins in creatureliness. We don't fundamentally want to accept what Cornelius Van Til, the apologist, called the, the creator-creature distinction. We don't want to recognize God is above us and not just a little bit six feet above us, but is infinitely above us and even beyond us. We want to be on the level of God 
and Oscar referenced this earlier in our discussions today, but that's Satan's temptation directly to Eve to be like God. That's Satan trying to collapse the creator-creature distinction into nothingness. Eve, you're on the same level as God. That's what is at stake here because as creatures, God has made us either a man or a woman for his glory. His word teaches us that throughout the Old and the New Testament, there are numerous roles we occupy only as a man or as a woman. Just to take an obvious one, I can't give birth to children. Only a woman with a womb given her by God can give birth to children. So that that is not simply a physical or biological fact. Oh, fascinating. Only one. No, that's a <laughs> calling. That speaks to, if we want to use a reformational word, vocation. It speaks to identity even beyond that. So, there's a lot at stake here. We're not just saying, hey, stop pretending like your body isn't your body. We're saying grafted into your body is a script for godliness. Men are supposed to be leaders, protectors, and providers. Women are supposed to be nurturers, helpers to men, and those who have a gentle and quiet spirit. Scripture has staked God's glory on men filling these roles and women filling these roles. Of course, there's a lot of overlap in terms of Christian discipleship. There is. But God's glory is in manhood and in womanhood, powered by the gospel. So, when Satan wants to get a people to stop glorifying God and rob God of his glory, what is one of the strategies he will execute? What is one of the programs he will push, return, and make happen? It is going to be us denying our creatureliness and us denying our bodily God-given identity. And that's exactly what is happening. So the stakes are very high. God's glory is in our manhood and our womanhood. You know, surface level existence is a tragedy when you don't dig down beneath the surface and look at the roots. Because what you just articulated is so profound. And I think more Christians understanding this rather than seeing this as some trivial, come on, it's no big deal. And sentimentality gets infused. Truth is lost. And that's so powerful. You mentioned God's glory, which is incredibly important. And it's also valuable to help those listening realize that his glory and our good are interlinked. And so when we invite someone who identifies as transgender, who are confused about their gender or sexuality, when we invite them to a biblical understanding of who they are, we are inviting them to be free from sin. Mm. We are inviting them not only to experience God's glory, but to experience ultimately what's good for their souls. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of, that is so true. There are a lot even of Christian young men and young women who don't know what it means to be a man or a woman. You used the phrase manly spirit a few minutes ago. There are a lot of, I think, younger Christians who A, wouldn't understand that and B, might even kind of scoff at that a little bit, chafe at it. But it's a directly biblical reality. Here's the thing though, even though the younger generation is being trained to scoff at biblical manhood like I'm talking about or biblical womanhood, a lot of young men, for example, are going online and they're looking up Jordan Peterson talks or Jocko Willink lessons or podcasts or Ben Shapiro clips. My point is they want to learn what it means, not just theoretically, not just a pastor saying there's manhood and womanhood, good, but they want to learn how to be that. So do young women, by the way, because our culture has taken that away. It's not just delegitimizing the concept of manhood or womanhood. It is doing that. It is also taking away any practical step toward that. 
And so boys and girls, young men and young women have no idea how to inhabit this. Is there a manly way to talk? Is there a manly way to conduct yourself? Do you look a a fellow man in the eye? You will get mocked if you say, for example, that men on average, young men should be trained to drop their voice, to speak from their stomach. Guys will go, that is so stupid. But then when a guy shows up who talks in a kind of stereotypically effeminate way, we all know something's going wrong. We know that that is not right. So we have to do the hard work of training young men and young women to inhabit this, but that's not going to be popular. Yeah. In our time. Amen. Ray. Amen. <laughs> Ray, the power of mantra. Again, I mentioned in another podcast about how impressionable we are, how influential the world is, but I've seen mantra as a powerful tool to shift perspective and philosophy and outlook. So for example, it's a woman's right to choose. That's a mantra that's repeated again and again and again. And it's the go-to immediately when you're talking to someone. And that becomes like codified truth in their heart. It's a woman's right to choose, of course. So you can't violate that. Love is love is another example in, in homosexuality. I'm trying to think, and maybe you guys can help me. I don't know what mantra might be used for transgenderism. Maybe be yourself or self-expression. I don't know. But follow your heart. Follow your heart. My body, my choice. A little Same kind of thing applies too. But mantra, right, isn't that like when something is repeated again and again, it influences, doesn't it? And how can we counter that as Christians? I think with the absolutes of God, that's what we've got. We've got the law of God written in stone by the finger of God. It's non-changing. And that's what we've got to say that this, when Paul was in Athens, he said, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's why man should repent because there's going to be a day of terror, utter terror. You know, all it takes is to be in a lightning storm to put the fear of God on you. I mean, I was in Reno about 200 years ago, and I was uh, there was a <laughs> lightning strike just by our bedroom, and, man, it put the fear of God in me. I'd never heard anything like it, and it was just God playing about. He's not even showing his anger. Did you see the first lightning strike, Ray? What was that like? Lightning struck Ray? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, the day of wrath, the day of terror, we've got to meditate on that. As I said earlier on, Paul said, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord. If we don't know the terror of the Lord, we won't persuade men. We won't care about transgender people, homosexual people, adulterers, fornicators, liars, and thieves. But once you know the fear of God personally and you realize the biblical revelation of God isn't just one of awe, It's deeper than that. I mentioned an illustration before where I've been approached by the police a lot to stop preaching, maybe over a dozen times. And every time they tell me to stop speaking, I stop speaking. It's because I'm from New Zealand. In New Zealand, I was brought up where the police had sticks. If you were naughty, they'd hit you with a stick. Same with England, (laughs) hit you with a stick. They didn't have guns like over here. So when I see a police officer walking towards me, all I see is this gun on the side of him. It's just little. And if I move quickly, I'm dead because he wants to get home that night. So there's more than an or for the police, a respect as a terror. He could kill me. I'm going to do what he says. If he says, move, I'll move. I'm not going to talk about First Amendment rights. And Jesus, when he spoke of fearing God, he didn't speak of an awe. He said, fear not him who has power to kill your body, and afterwards do no more, do no more but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. 
That's the God that commanded me to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that's why I run to it, because I fear God. I want to obey him, and I fear for the fate of the ungodly. And that's what we need to be motivated by. Uh, You mentioned biblical manhood. I agree with what you said. I do think that there's almost these two extremes out there in the culture. There's an outright denial of what it means to be a man, which you've alluded to. But there's also this hyper-expression of manhood that is an abomination to the Lord. I'm talking about like the kind of person who is domineering and controlling and abusive. I grew up with a stepdad who, if you saw him, you thought he was the man's man, but he was he was beating my my mom and and abusing us in every way imaginable. And unfortunately, our culture gives space for that and it calls it being a man to sit there and to talk poorly about women and to check them out and to drink beer and to do these things. And only in the scriptures can we understand what it means to be a biblical man? And Jesus is the prime example. Mm -hmm. He was someone that was approachable when it comes to children. They loved him. They found him gentle. He was someone that women, including women who had been in heinous sin and who were abused in their lives, trusted him, wanted to sit at his feet and listen to him. And so he was somebody who knew how to be gentle and kind and patient, but he was also the kind of man that could throw over a table in righteous anger. And so I think uh, in order for us to understand what it means to be a man, we need to look honestly at the scriptures and discover what God has designed for us. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, there's what I call an planetary unholy alliance, knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or unconsciously, but I think demonically steered where Man is in the spirit of Genesis 11 and a Babylite spirit is trying to overthrow the rule of God. Mm -hmm. It's a Psalm 2 dynamic. Let's break their bonds and pieces. Let's cast away their cords from us. And I I think of of what it says, you know, that that he who sits in the heavens laughs (laughs) and he speaks to them in his wrath. And then it says, you know, kiss the son uh, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled, but a little. I mean, even as I say that, you know, like I trembled the thought of that. Mm. And I think we too often disconnect the wrath of God and reprobation from what we're seeing in our culture today. Think that we need to go back to that. We need to understand that. We need to realize that. And that what we're seeing are these different manifestations of that. Identifying the root issue is serious. But Owen, I, I wanna get practical with you because this ends up becoming a real life close to home issue for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. We know people whose children have come home and said, I'm not a boy anymore. I'm, not a, I'm a girl and, and I want you to call me this and I want you to use these pronouns. Yeah. What do you say to these parents right now that are dealing with this? How do they walk their, their family, their kids through this? How do they grapple? Yeah, fundamentally, I think we have to know as fathers and mothers that we can't save our child and we can't make them live out God's truth. So I think there can be a lot of shame and a lot of kind of self-recrimination when that happens for couples who are in that place. And no, no father or mother is going to be perfect, but fundamentally we have to know that this is an expression of the wildness of sin in the human heart. So a child who makes this choice is in the same position as a child who is living a very respectable American upper-class life. Two kids in the home, a husband or wife, nice white picket fence out front, and yet an unbeliever, right? We can tend to think that's better. (laughs) And in truth, it's not. In truth, a wild, 
rebellious heart is always uh, an offense to God and always that which is going to occasion the eternal wrath of God forever. But there is a real grief. We can also be honest when we see a child not just reject the will of God, but reject the design of God. There is a kind of real grief there. It's not that they go to a different level of, of hell or something if they don't repent of that, but there is an, a, a special fist being shaken in God's face. And so, all we can do is pray. All we can do is pray. All we can do while the kids are in the house is try to live in grace and truth, is try to be men and women who stand on the truth and love the truth, and then not just talk a big game about grace, but actually show grace to our kids, have a family environment where grace is real and thick and true. So, part of that involves teaching on manhood and womanhood, that's not just principial, sit down, kids, on the couch, and I'll teach you. Some of it is that, and some of it is just like a Deuteronomy 6 kind of teaching, where you're on the paths and in the field with your son or your daughter, or whatever it may be, and you're just talking about it, and you're, you're having quick conversations. Sometimes those quick conversations mean a tremendous amount. Before I left on this very trip, yay, this very trip, I pulled my son to the side, and I said, Gavin, buddy, you're the man of the house while I'm gone, you know, so that's not a big 25-minute TED Talk for my son. That's just me trying to communicate something about biblical manhood. I don't have it all figured out or something as a father, but I'm trying to help him understand what manhood is. Well, and when means my, a lot to a kid. He's going to remember that. I pray it does. Yeah. When my daughter makes a great meal with her mom, when the seven-year-old daughter, the little blonde in my house, dumps the mix into the taco seasoning or whatever, I try to praise that because, you know, she's she didn't make all the tacos, just so everybody knows, but she helped. Sure sounds and, good. It's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're all hungry here. That, that does, actually really does sound good. <laughs> so those little, thing matter, little yeah. things matter too. Yeah. No, they do. They go a long way. But Mark, you know, that desensitization that I talked about to where now we as Christians honestly ask the question of one another. I mean, I, I struggle with the fact that people ask this. I think we should know better, but it's asked, hey, my, my friends are getting married. They're, they're lesbians or they're homosexual, you know, they're gay or whatever, homosexual. Should I go to the wedding or not? No. To me, that to me, yeah. But to me, that's a byproduct of desensitization because we wouldn't we wouldn't ask that question. Hey, my my friend Joe's marrying his daughter Linda. Uh, should I go to the wedding? We would never in a million years ask that question. But we're desensitized. So, what do you do with your kids if they come home and they say, "Hey, Dad, please don't call me he anymore. I'm a she now, and call me Linda, not." George or whatever. I'm not even going to use one of your real kids' names. But but what do you do? Do you sit them down and have a conversation? Yeah, I'm going to try to speak into my kids' lives as much as I can. You know, but the, do you do it? Do you comply? I, there's no way I would comply because it's a lie, Yeah. right? The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome, neither are the rules of the house. And I understand that kids are going to do what they're going to do as they go out and about. And as Owen said, I can't save anyone. I can't save my kids. And it's not my job to raise Christian children. It's my job to model what a Christian is for my children. And if I don't speak up and say that which is right in a situation like this, well, then I'm lying and I'm misrepresenting. I'm misrepresenting the heart of God and the mind of God. So my kids, I do not believe would actually do that because we've had so many talks in the midst of the situation. If they felt strongly about something like that, they're gonna go to somebody else and try to think how, what is the exit plan to get out of the house? I've made a stand and I've taken firm stances on everything under the sun. So, but my heart 
my heart bleeds, if you would, for maybe parents that haven't done that, that have been so busy working two, three jobs and more interested in watching Simpsons than John MacArthur on television. What, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, I, I think that there's a time of repentance. I like what Todd Friel says, that your kids should know that you're the greatest sinner in the house, not because your sin is greater than your kids, but you're continually asking for forgiveness. You're continually modeling what it's like to be forgiven. When you sit down and you have devotions, there's a big part of it saying, hey, this is how I messed up yesterday, but God. And those two connecting words connect me to you as well, child. Yeah. What's crazy is that in, in this day and age, if you don't use someone's pronoun, it's considered an act of aggression or violence. Yeah. And let me just say straight away that as Christians, we stand against any real form of transphobia or homophobia. Anytime somebody dishonors or disrespects you or your dignity, we stand with you and against that. However, I do not believe that refusing to participate in a lie is an act of aggression or violence. You can't force me to participate in a fantasy that's not reality. Yeah, this is really important. And it relates to love of neighbor. Mm. If I can connect something real quick here, we're being told today as we tape this, as we, is that, is it correct to say tape? <laughs> yeah, you're old. Digitize. Yeah, Where did old. that come out? Yeah. As we yeah. digitize <laughs> this reality. As yeah, we, we cloudify t- this. We, we typed on a typewriter the okay. script for you. <laughs> I lost the thread though. Yeah. Okay, as we record this, we're in a time where we're still facing a lot of lockdown consequences, mandates for vaccinations, et cetera, and so on. As people watch this content later in the future, who knows where, what they'll be experiencing, good, bad, or otherwise. But right now, we're being told, love your neighbor and do X, right? We can have a healthy conversation about all sorts of those matters, but fundamentally, What's happening with this conversation about vaccines and COVID and all this is that love of neighbor is being defined as do what your neighbor or the government wants you to do. That is loving. It has come to my mind that evangelicals who are making that case for secularism, and there are many of them, and they are some of the most prominent evangelicals out there, are the same evangelicals who told us two or three years ago to use the pronouns, the preferred pronouns of transgender individuals. In other words, you understand the connection. Love your neighbor means do what your neighbor wants you to do. Mm. In neither case, in my view, are we loving our neighbor by living a lie. In both cases, instead of doing what our neighbor wants us to do, we have to do something much harder and much better. (laughs) And that is to first obey the first commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and thus stand on the truth. That's not a mode of love. Send good feelings in God's direction. Loving God with everything you have means truly loving God, means knowing God truly. And then out of the overflow of that, we we seek to fulfill the second greatest commandment and love our neighbor. Love of neighbor then does not mean Obey the whims of your neighbor. I love that. In a lot of cases, our neighbor is not going to feel loved by true Christian love. Yeah. We've just got to state that up. Yeah, and that's the definition of love, isn't it? Love is giving somebody what they need, not necessarily what they want. Right. Yeah. Ray, I want to hit on something, and then I want to end with you, Owen, talking about where you think this is all going to go if we remain on this trajectory. But Ray, I want to hit on something very important and very controversial. I mentioned mantra earlier. I believe the that mantra or the, uh, let's say the impact or the effects of mantra 
doesn't necessarily have to be connected to the utterance of words again and again, but mantra can be conveyed or or can have impact through just the the repetition of a practice per se. So for example, let's say there's a mantra that says, you know, petting bunnies is wonderful. Now, you don't have to necessarily say that in every media piece or every public display, but if you constantly show people petting bunnies, well, that's going to have an influence on people that petting bunnies is cool and it's going to affect people. I believe that. I think that entertainment today, unfiltered entertainment allowed in people's homes and with people's children is playing a big part in shaping the hearts and minds of the next generation in that sense. It's repeated, it's seen, and it gets ingrained into them that this is cool. So I want you to speak to that. Christians allowing anything in their home, godless entertainment, and how that's impacting the next generation. Well, I lived through the 60s. That's way before you even thought of. <laughs> but I felt the power of the mantra of the 60s, mm. the, the breakdown of my moral understanding. I, I knew what was right. God had written this law upon my heart. And there was this mass of music that came to me, beautiful music via the Beatles and via the Beach Boys and things like that. And wouldn't it be nice to sleep together and we can live mm-hmm. and that and, that and mm-hmm. all of it was just, you can do it. You could just leave your conscience and do it. And that's just got so pervasive now. And it's just in every area, entertainment. I mean, you think of some movies that came out using the F word over 450 times that I can't remember, the Wall Street wolf and using God's name over 40 times in vain. Mm-hmm. And you get Kids, they say, do you ever use God's name in vain? Yeah, but it's just cultural, just cultural. And it is. It's just been pushed on them and changed their hearts. It's a philosophy of the world. And the only thing that can stop it is the power of the gospel. Yeah. Transform someone overnight. And I like to say when I became a Christian, I instantly became pro-life, instantly. The moment I repented of my faith from one man, one woman, anti-adultery, anti-fornication, anti-blasphemy, anti-lying and stealing – God took his law and wrote it upon my heart and caused me to walk in the statutes. That's what this generation needs, and that's what we've got to proclaim. I think it's important, too, for Christians as parents to have a better understanding on how stories play out and keep a keen eye on the stories that are being told, especially to our children. Because the challenge is most parents will think to themselves, they'll Google real quick a website and ask, make sure there's no cuss words in a movie, make sure there's no LGBT recognition in a movie, and they think, okay, that's safe. That movie is safe and good, but there are plenty of movies that we should still ask ourselves whether they're worth seeing. And I get a lot of heat for this, but I'm not a big fan of the films that are coming out when it comes to Disney. They have a monopoly on a kid's childhood and they intentionally infuse a worldview. Of course they do. There's, it's, this isn't a conspiracy theory. We all have a worldview and any type of a, anything that we create is going to have that worldview imprinted on it. And so one of like the prime examples is the Frozen movie. Everybody loved that movie. And the number one song in the Frozen movie is Let It Go. It's this mantra in society to like cast away all of the thoughts that God would have on you, that your parents tell about you, and to go do you in your own thing. I mean, the very words, I just pull it up. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. There's these little wow. five, six-year-old girls yeah. dressed like her singing these songs nonstop, and there are Christian parents going, hey, but there's no cuss words in there. 
Mm. Exactly. No, mm. that's that's so powerfully that's true, point. Oscar. And I think that we need to challenge ourselves to the point of feeling uncomfortable because there are ramifications to these things. But sadly, the ramifications are associated with our enjoyment of certain entertainment. Yeah, we need to look and say, you know, we do this and we've been doing this. Have we been thinking through it? I think another important element is teaching discernment. There are teachable moments where maybe we can watch something and use it as a teaching moment, enjoy certain aspects of it, but then say, look, what is wrong with this? So that Mm -hmm. our kids learn to discern through life. Mm -hmm. But then there are things that are so blatant that they will have an impact. Kids that are growing up in Christian homes that are listening to not music that that any of us might say, okay, that's reasonable. And that's talking about loving your husband or your wife, or it's about the beauty of life or whatever. But music with godless philosophies in it, filthy, corrupt language in it, hedonism, and the kids, oh no, I the words don't really affect me. I just really like the music and it makes me, that's hogwash, man. Mm-hmm. It's going to get into your heart and mind. It's gonna begin impacting how you live. So we need to step back and say, what are we allowing in our homes? What are our kids watching? And why are we shocked after letting them watch all of this godless stuff that they grow up and they, they have a godless worldview? Right. We have to do that. You just yeah. got to see how much they pay for a Super Bowl advert to see the power of music and advertising. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Philosophy. The question is, who's catechizing your children? Yeah. Because the thing is, if you're relying on Sunday school, which is one hour a week and one hour of weekly Bible study in your home, and that's it. And then after that, the television is is everything that they're receiving. They pick what music they want to listen to. Then still the culture is catechizing your children because the vast majority of their imagination is being shaped by not you and not the scriptures. Yeah, and and something to bring in is a phone. When I drive in my neighborhood and there's a 11-year-old kid just dropped off the school bus and this kid, not an adult, not a Christian, is on his phone, just staring down at his phone. I have a visceral reaction now, like as a father, I'm just like, I know what it is to be an 11 year old boy with an unregenerate heart. Humanity's as as sinful as it has ever been, right? By nature, (laughs) stay steady until Christ makes things right. But that is a torture chamber of a device for an unregenerate, unself-controlled child, boy or girl alike. I'm not laying down a new law, Strand's new law, as if there's a new Bible chapter in here, But I am saying my children will not have their own phone until they are discerning, until they are ready to handle it. That will be a long time. But I fear that even in Christian circles, it's almost like, well, of course our kids have phones at age 10, 12, 14, 16. I'm not, again, I don't know the perfect age. I'm just saying handle with tremendous care because those devices will catechize your children quicker than you know. It's a little hand grenade you're giving. It's a hand grenade. And not just that, but even when those devices are given to them, especially our boys, are we putting are we putting accountability software on them? Are yes. we putting blocks on certain things? Of course, we know it comes down to the heart. That's why you have to train them from, from the outset because they'll find it wherever they want if they're going to. But we also need to be responsible and wise because I again, I have seen parents who have had their kids homeschooled even, but their kids grew up and became homosexuals and transsexuals because the sewage pipe was coming straight into their home. Yeah. There weren't guards, even on their computer where the child can come and have access and jump in and, and their minds become marred by that. We have to be vigilant 
as parents and thoughtful about that because you can't unring a bell. That's right. And once some of those things have happened, you can't reverse them. So Owen, as we wrap up, I just want you not to be bleak because of course we'll always end with the hope of the gospel, but where does society go Mm. if we continue in this trajectory of saying that basically you can be whatever you wanna be? You wanna be a man, a woman, a cat, a dog? Because I've seen that, it's legitimate. People are identifying as animals and as aliens and as all kinds of things. Where do we end up? Easy, let it go. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're in a fascinating moment where Dude, it's the Christians and the pagans living together. Hmm. I, I just think this to myself. I don't have the silver bullet answer for where it's all going, but I feel this profoundly today. Like my neighbor who looks like me and looks normal and does a lot of the things that the Strand family does is a pagan. They're not just like not quite a Christian, but we have the same worldview. There are a lot of people around us who have a completely different worldview. And if their child actually does transition to a different sex or different gender in the modern word, they'll applaud that. They'll think that is good. Mm -hmm. So where does this go? I don't know. What does a rock, where does a rock go when it's thrown down a well with no bottom? I I don't know where it goes. I know that it goes towards judgment and wrath. All we can do as Christians is strive and pray to be salt and light and preach the gospel. And building strong families by God's grace is really important here because our family is a living witness, isn't it? So, as much as the filth that we've been talking about, follow your heart of Disney, let it go, as much as that is exerting influence on all of us and our children and our society, the happy, truth-driven Christian family is powerful as well. It's very powerful. And you come from trauma in your background. You come from sin, to use a better word, not a therapeutic word, but you come from sin in your background. You come from pain. You come from a divorced home. You come from a broken home. And then you see not a fake Christian family, but a real flesh and blood Christian family where the father and husband strives to be like Christ by God's grace. And the wife submits to her husband and is her husband's helper and loves that. And they love each other and they confess sin and they're striving day by day to be a gospel projecting couple. And then there's kids who are well-loved and well-cared for and the home isn't in disarray. It's a happy home. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. That has real power. And that's where boys are shaped into men and girls are shaped into godly women. And that along with the truth that we proclaim is what we offer this world. I think it's headed this society towards further distance from the truth, towards post-humanism, towards transhumanism, ultimately, towards complete make up your own identity. We're going to be living side by side with people who have no grip, no purchase on anything approaching the truth. But God's gospel is stronger. And for our purposes, for the purposes of this discussion, I just stubbornly continue to believe that there is a palpable beauty and power to the, the Christian family, not from us, yeah. but from, from God. And to provide some hope for those who might feel overwhelmed, like I'm raising kids into this society that's becoming post-human. As you've mentioned before, the good news is the church has been here before. You mm. mentioned Corinthians, Destroyer of the Gods, Larry Hurtado does a really good job of laying out what the early church was facing. And it was a society that was just 
morally antithetical to everything that Jesus taught. And yet, that is the exact moment in history where the early church exploded. Mm. It was it, it birthed the Christianity that we know today. And so the hope is the promise that the gates of hell will never prevail, that Christ, that Jesus is doing something, that he is victorious in what he is doing, and ultimately he's coming back to make right all that we make wrong. And that's the hope that we have. Amen. And I love what it says in scripture that it's through the foolishness of preaching that God saves those who believe. Think about that foolishness of preaching. It's encouraging to me because sometimes- You must have heard my sermons. (laughs) In the face of- such a godless age that seems to be so overpowering, it's easy to sometimes feel like, what's my preaching doing? We sort of become self-conscious and think about the frailty of of our words or the feebleness of our words. And we're like, what's this doing? But it's through the foolishness of preaching that God saves because it's the power of God through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And that's the hope for this world. May we preach it faithfully and boldly. And those of you listening right now, and you're pricked in your conscience by what you've heard, I don't need to go in depth, but the gospel's simple. The bad news is you've broken God's law. You're in danger of God's wrath and judgment. And Christ who owed you nothing but wrath and judgment came, took the place of sinners on the cross after living the perfect life you could never live, bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners, rose again three days later. And if you repent and place your faith in him, that blood that was shed will wash your sins away and you'll have everlasting life as a free gift, independent of anything that you could ever do. It's a gift of God's grace. Mm. So turn to him in faith and repentance and faith and let him set you free. Mm. What an awesome time with you, Owen. Mm. These uh, three podcasts that we've recorded have been very phenomenal, filled with truth. And uh, you've helped to bring that to people today with candidness and with clarity and with winsomeness. And we're just so grateful that you're with us. So friends, you can get in touch with Dr. Owen Strand by checking out his Twitter account, which is? At O-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. But more important than that, super fast, this ministry is a ministry of light and darkness. And I just want to say that quickly. I'm sorry I hijacked the, uh, no problem. you know, shout your, shout your Twitter handle there. But this ministry is helping win people over from darkness to light. You guys are doing excellent work. And Ray, you've been so faithful for decades now, and you're still in the game. And and many have crossed the line uh, into the kingdom of God. So praise God for you guys. Thank you. Thank you. That means- I mean it. That means a lot. We're blessed to have your friendship and partnership in the gospel. And we hope for many more opportunities to collaborate like this. Amen. Would you eardrop your brain to me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> one day Let me, yeah. one day yeah. that may be possible if we stay on this trajectory <laughs> that's but, true but yeah so your Twitter is again at O-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N the, the place to go is my podcast I'm kind of putting more into that it's yep. called The Antithesis The Antithesis that's great So wonderful thank you so much Owen and again thank the you. book is What Does the Bible Teach About Transgenderism you've got to get a hold of that it's bite sized but powerful And also Ray's book, World Religions in a Nutshell. That's a really good one that touches on some of these worldviews that end up influencing the godlessness we see in our age. So World Religions in a Nutshell, make sure to check that out. Also subscribe to the podcast, please. Also share it and comment and rate it. It helps us a lot. Also email us at podcast.livingwaters.com. Tell us what you think. If you have any suggestions for future podcast topics. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you here next time on The Living Waters podcast. 
winners, winners, winners. That's you, friends. Those of you who I'm about to announce are the winners of this week's podcast giveaway on the Living Waters podcast. We've got Carlos from Lamont, California, Daniel from Jamestown, North Carolina, Ed Washburn from Tennessee, David Norwood from North Carolina, Doug Campobello from South Carolina, Ali from Falls Church, Virginia, Adrian from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Joshua from Excelsior Springs, Missouri, Eva from Bow Island, Canada, and Penelope from Bardwell Park, Australia. Shout out to the Aussies and the Canadians out there. Friends, you can get this too. Those of you who are listening, just share the word and sign up for the Living Waters podcast.